Hello, my friend. Welcome to Beds of Politics. I'm Mr. Watson. I am most certainly your host forever and eternally, Christian Watson. It is so wonderful to be with you guys here on this on this wonderful, lovely uh, Wednesday morning for me. It's for you guys when it airs, it'll be uh, late afternoon, evening. But regardless, at any rate, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, let me just start off with a a, a note of uh, a note of courtesy. I find that my shows that I do, these podcasts, are infrequent in the sense that I have a schedule, but I don't always stick to it. And I just ask you guys, bear with me. I am a college student, and I also run a full-time YouTube channel. It is my intention to do both the YouTube channel and the podcast simultaneously, because in my opinion, I think both of those activities um, balance each other out. Some people want to have my shorter form content, which is in my YouTube channel. Others want to have my longer form content, which is here in the Pets of Politics podcast. And so I, I'm trying to make sure that I'm serving the best of both worlds, that I'm serving everyone who wants to have a particular thing. But I just need you guys to be very calm, uh, to continue to be patient with me, and I think that we'll all be all right. Uh, actually, I know we'll all be all right. And speaking of all being all right... It, it, it occurs to me, my friends, that in our current state of American politics, people seem to be wooed almost solely by how they feel and they translate those feelings into values. There is an adage that Shapiro uses, Ben Shapiro says that facts don't care about your feelings. But the problem is that statement presumes an epistemological condition in which facts reign supreme in the minds of everyone. Now, the factual world is the factual world. The actual world is the actual world. It cannot be supplanted by the arbitrary whims of its inhabitants. The world reigns supreme. Reality reigns supreme. Heraclitus would say Logos. The Logos reigns supreme. Sort of epistemological fact. Epistemology simply being that which relates to the process of obtaining and dissecting what knowledge means. But we've kind of suspended the necessity of a stable epistemology and we've seeded it for our strict human-related subjective values. And we presume those things to reign supreme over the world. And I, when I say we, perhaps I'm speaking too broadly. When I say we, I actually mean that many individuals who are of any political persuasion. This happens on both the left and the right, but it also especially happens on the left because a lot of left-leaning ideologies have an epistemology which prides the idea of lived experience excuse me, over facts. It prides the idea of how I feel, how I interact with something over how that thing is in reality. It prides the idea of what a perception seems to be uh, what reality is. A lot of left-leaning ideologies absolutely 100% endorse that way of dealing with the world. This is why 
many Marxists, neo-Marxists rather, think that everything can be explained by a single value. And so today on Pensapodage, my friends, we're going to talk about that and how that has infected our political discourse, particularly as it relates to the Derek Chauvin verdict. Now, for those of you who are unaware, if you have been living under a rock, or if you just don't follow the news, which may be very good for your soul, what did Thomas Jefferson say? The man who reads the newspaper may be uninformed. Uh, that's probably, you could translate that into modern parlance and, and probably say the man who is stuck in his phone all day is uninformed. Although, uh, I don't mind if you're stuck in your phone reading Christian Watson or watching Christian Watson <laughs> or listening to Christian Watson, but that's another matter. But these days, my friends, this overload of information, this this sort of, what is it? And the overload of information and the propensity to have information conform to your opinions has made people act in a certain way in the public sphere that is not conducive to actually producing knowledge. You cannot have a political system without having individuals in a political system that, un that have a knowledge of the political system. Almost any political philosopher will tell you well, at least the ones that I have read. Locke would tell you this. Um, John Stuart Mill would tell you this. That the, the importance of discussion, the importance of knowing things, of the importance of the foundations of your system, knowing the foundations of your system, and being able to interact with them, that those are indispensable to a free society. What Mill, what Mill says in Chapter 2 of On Liberty, what Mill says, John Stuart Mill, what he says is, he says that, to correct falsehood, this is paraphrasing, but to correct falsehood, one must use two factors. One must use their experience of knowledge and the discourse surrounding that experience. The experience of knowledge, my friends, could be as simple as you going to um, going to a, a beekeeping plant but you because you don't know anything about keeping bees. Going to a beekeeping plant and putting on a suit and actually um, tending to bees. So that's your experience. But then he says the discourse surrounding it. So you can have all the experience that you want to have, but experience is not the overriding value of interactions in life. For John Stuart Mill, it also is how you interpret the experience. And the best way to interpret the experience is for Mill, and he suggests this, doesn't he say it explicitly, is to get outside of yourself and put your experience on the, the sort of, um, on the, not the soapbox, but on the table for a conversation. The problem is, too many people in modern-day society don't want to have conversations. And when I say society, I don't mean this granular image of uh, American life that so many people have today. So many people think that society is this single, organized, massive organism that can be understood through a certain set of mechanisms, whether it's statistics, whether it's through sociological musings. That's probably a bad idea of what society is, in my personal opinion. Because that ignores the truth of everyday life. You know, Rosewood Lane, one of the greatest writers to ever grace the American experiment, Rosewood Lane made this, made this point very eloquently in Discovery of Freedom. She said that society is simply, I'm paraphrasing again, 
the micro interactions of diverse individuals, diverse being very different individuals, or even the same individuals, but of differing individuals, probably, that's probably the better word, of differing individuals that come together to maybe form something large, but can only be understood intimately in that individual instance. So society, my friends, is right now, you hearing my voice through your phone, uh, through your computer, wherever you're listening to me, through, through, the, through the radio, we're on the radio in some places, wherever you're listening to me to, that is society. You going out to the store to buy some bacon or to buy meat, then to go go out to the, to the cookware store to buy a pan, then you interacting with the cashier to make sure you can facilitate both aims, the meat and the pan. That's society. Those little bitty interactions that many of us take for granted on every every single day, that is actually society. But so, 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 so many people, so many individuals, so many want to pretend that society is something beyond us. If society is beyond us, then that is not a society at all. That is something else. That is a metaphysical almost concept that we are using to consign ourselves to a certain state of being. You know, whenever I hear someone say, society is the problem. Society has gone bad. Society is losing its values. I think to myself, where's the I? (laughs) Where's the I in that statement? Henry David Thoreau, who, in my opinion, is a great American philosopher. I don't agree with him on everything. Uh, but in my opinion, is a great American philosopher. He says the following in chapter 2 of... Uh, not, not, not chapter 2. In the chapter of Walden called Economy. He says, In most books, the I, or first person, is omitted. And this it will be retained. That, in respect to egotism is the main difference. We commonly do not remember that it is, after all, always the first person that is speaking. I should not talk so much about myself if there were anybody else whom I knew as well. Unfortunately, I am confined to this theme by the narrowness of my experience. Moreover, I, on my side, require every writer, first or last, in a simple and sincere account of his own life, and not merely what he has heard of other men's lives. Some such account as he would send to his kindred from a distant land. For if he has lived sincerely, it must have been in a distant land to me. Perhaps these pages are particularly addressed to poor students. Do you see what Thoreau is saying? Thoreau is saying that so many times in society, the I, the you, the individual, the individual, the I is is the first letter in the individual. You cannot have individual without the word I. You have something that is distorted and and not the full word of you take the way the I. The I is the 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 letter, the symbol that constitutes our understanding of the self. In that sense, the I is a very in my opinion, it's almost spiritual. It's almost spiritual in that you don't immediately see the significance of the I, of the letter I, until you actually think about it and you actually realize how it relates to your being. The I. And he's saying that so many people forsake the I. And in forsaking the I, in my opinion, this is not Christian Watson speaking, they forsake themselves. 
What about the I, my friends? When you say that society has gone to pot and that the problems in the world can be explained by society, what you're really doing is you're forsaking the I. What you're really doing is that you're eliminating the role that you play in all of this, and you're eliminating the role that your interactions play in, in forming the conditions, the, the antecedents for what many sociologists falsely claim as society, and that is this granular mask. The problem of the eye is one of the greatest, greatest, greatest problems of our modern-day discourses, of contemporary modern-day social and political discourses, because the problem of the I explains a lot of the errors in commentary. This brings me to the Derek Chauvin verdict. I know some of you have been waiting. Christian, we didn't get to the verdict, man. You have to, I have to explain to you the foundations of my thinking before I can actually tackle the subjects, or else I wouldn't be doing my due diligence to you. I have to get that out of the way, my friends. I'm sorry if you don't like it, but it's incredibly important. You cannot have society. You cannot have you or anyone else without the I, without the word I. The I is so important. So, after the verdict yesterday, I was somewhat shocked. I thought for sure that Chauvin was going to get manslaughter. I had no clue he was going to get the two murder charges. But I wasn't disappointed. Look, Derek Chauvin made an egregious decision. He made a decision that snuffed out the soul life of another human individual. I don't care if that individual was a criminal. I don't care if that individual was on drugs. I don't care what that individual did or what. Derek Chauvin made a terrible, terrible, terrible decision. Having said that, there is a case to be made, I think, about the relationship between um, Floyd's demise and fentanyl or whatever. But regardless, none of that takes away the fact that Derek Chauvin committed a moral obscenity and that that moral obscenity needed to be corrected by the justice system. So I don't have any interest in relitigating the trial. I don't have any interest in drumming up sophisticated legal arguments about why Chauvin is guilty or not guilty. That's not what Christian Watson does. Because number one, that's out of his depth. That's out of his depth. And number two, huh, it's trite. It's completely and utterly trite. It's trite. So many people want to stay with familiarity because familiarity makes us as human beings feel comfortable and we like comfortability, I think. And in staying with familiarity, we tend to put unoriginal arguments in the air. We tend to regurgitate un unoriginal arguments and let them just fester and fester and fester and grow and grow and grow. But I'm, I don't intend to follow that path. So what I intend to do, my friends, I intend to look at this as simply a microcosm. And this is my contention, that the Chauvin verdict is simply a microcosm, a single event of the broader status of how so many Americans understand politics. 
the Chauvin trial, my friends. First, let's talk about the lead-up to the Chauvin trial. Before the Chauvin verdict was even read off, you had people like Maxine Waters saying that if this is not a murder verdict, we have to go, we have to get confrontational. You have so many people putting the sort of ontological value of black individuals, and ontological simply meaning that relating to being, the value of the being, the value of the humanity of black individuals, investing it into the fate of this case, something that is absolutely external to that value. <laughs> you have Joe Biden saying that I'm praying the evidence is overwhelming. And many people on the right have attacked them for saying this in a sense that it could impinge upon the jury's impartiality. Well, I have got news for you, my friend. I don't think that any jury is entirely impartial. I don't think any jury is entirely impartial. There is a concept called jury nullification in which a jury will can and does decide. This happens all the time. Can and does decide that a certain social aim is greater or bigger than the facts of the case. And whether the Chauvin trial was an incident of jury nullification is not my business. But my point is this. There are quite literally mechanisms for jurors who are humans, by the way, who, are, who are, have, individually have values, by the way, um, who individually hold certain things to be true, by the way, and who manifest those values and those opinions and are expected to manifest a certain set of values and opinions during the deliberations, by the way. You see, the jury system in America is actually quite philosophical. Because the judge gives the jury instructions, and there are also unspoken assumptions about how the jury is meant to act in the course of their deliberations. Come on, guys, you got to realize what's going on here. And those unspoken assumptions and those instructions impart certain values, and human beings are the, um, are the vessels by which value manifests. Without us, value cannot manifest. Now, if you believe... That the universe is a sentient, conscious being, and I guess the universe can manifest it. But that's not what something that Christian Moss is not necessarily into. Value manifests through our actions. So in the jury system, you have the sort of artificial tweaking of value that is meant to push the jurors towards a certain mental state, a certain mental disposition. Walk with me here. So you had Joe Biden, and this is a separate point, saying, I, I hope this is guilty. Maxine Waters saying, I hope this is guilty. You had so many people just pouring out. You had so many people pouring out and saying that, you know, this is an incident of something much larger than Chauvin. And in saying all of these things, these people, these politicians demonstrate that Chauvin is not simply considered as a single individual who made a bad decision or a single individual who existed in, in, and whose actions exist in that temporal moment, that fateful temporal moment in which George Floyd's life essence was snuffed out by him. No, 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 no. To these people, George Floyd represents something much bigger than that. 
you doubt me? Okay. Well, then why did the NAACP, right after the verdict came out as all guilty on all three counts, why did the NAACP say that this verdict um, shows us that we need to look at the white supremacist roots of the criminal justice system when, number one, a racial motive has not been established on be the behest of Chauvin's action, and number two, the only reason that white supremacy even comes up in the context of this trial is because Chauvin happened to be white and Floyd happened to be black. This term would have been withheld if the cards were different or if all the cards were just completely and utterly switched. Do you see what's going on here? But beyond that, because many, many folks make that point, the fact that the NAACP said that, Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, which is Black Lives Matter Incorporated, which is ran by those three women, one of which just bought a $2.3 million house, they said that white supremacy, this verdict shows that white supremacy cannot prevail. Why do you think so many people are casting this as a victory against white supremacy and not as a victory against a perhaps corrupt or wild officer. The problem of the eye, going back to Thoreau, there's the problem of the eye. And the problem of the eye creates conditions for macro understandings of things. For a macro understanding of society. For a macro understanding of conditions. For a macro... Do you guys see where I'm going here? Do you see where I'm going here? Everything has become extrapolated. Simply meaning everything has become bigger than it's meant to be. And extrapolation is when I say, okay. Um, everyone on my campus... Uh, one person on my campus was very nice to me. Therefore, everyone on my campus is very nice to me. That's an extrapolation. I am, I, am I am deducing a condition of a particular thing or area on the basis of a limited sample size. That is an extrapolation. The problem of the I has an, it has an intimate involvement, intermarriage, with the problem of extrapolations. The problem of extrapolations. All right, guys, we'll, we'll be back in like a moment. Uh, we're about to go on break. A few things, though. One, if you like my message and you want to support me in everything that I do, I'm asking a few things of you. Number one, I'm asking you to please go to patreon.com slash officialcwatson. That is patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash officialcwatson, official C Watson. And I'm asking you to donate however much you can donate. If you can... Donate $10 to $10. You can donate $20 to $20. However much you can donate helps me bring my message to you. That's one thing. I also want to say a word that we are brought to you by the Bold TV Media Network. Bold TV is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful organization. I'm happy to work with them. We are brought to you. This podcast is brought to you by the Bold TV Radio Network. And we are also on the Fed by Ravens Radio Network as well. We are on the Fed by Ravens Radio Network. We love them. We love Brian Hyde and everyone. We are on the Fed by Ravens Radio Network. And I also want to make another point. We are also on YouTube. And my YouTube channel is Christian Watson. You type that in on YouTube, Christian Watson, and boom, it will come up. I actually you to subscribe there as well. Also, follow me on all social media, um, Facebook and Twitter particularly, which is 
at official c watson facebook and twitter handles are at official c watson follow me on all social media make sure to let me know you like you enjoy the show and that you enjoy me and that uh, you've been enlightened or not enlightened however you feel let me know okay i'll be back in about a few minutes thank you back my friends to pence pods with your host mr christian watson it's interesting when i refer to myself like that i don't know why i do that actually i do know why let me tell you a story actually guys so so um the reason i call myself mr watson is not because i want to seem older than i actually am because i am 20 years old according to many people i am still a baby i am absolutely still a baby according to many people i think that i'm someone who has not even lived a good majority of life quite yet. Um, But I call myself Mr. Watson because so many people have told me that I look like I'm in my 30s. And at first, that was actually a blow to my self-esteem. And and it's been weighing on me until about a year ago when I said, okay, you think I'm 30 or 40 years old? Well, even though being older is not considered as aesthetically desirable to some people what is considered desirable is the alleged experience that i hear comes with age now if you look at the conduct of so many people including congress people who are about 70 or 80 years old who are acting as if they are absolute raven ravenous buffoons you would probably use that to dispute the notion that all age is correlated with better knowledge and wisdom or whatever or whatever (laughs) but generally age is considered to be a dispenser of wisdom and it's also been considered to be a dispenser of 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 the ability to understand concepts more deeply and so in that instance my friends why run away from the fact that people think i look older wouldn't that simply be hurting the brand that I'm trying to establish here, which is a pensive brand, a brand that thinks about political issues deeply and takes a hard look at them and tries to explain what lies beneath my my phrase that I like to use, what lies beneath? That why not seem older? Because if you seem younger, people will dispute your ability to even understand what lies beneath, much less interact with it verbally on a podcast. That's why I call myself Mr. Watson. Because people and, and i kind of i kind of let other people give me that t- term indirectly but uh it's it's the world is interesting my friends <laughs> the world is interesting um but as i mentioned my friends as i mentioned about the verdict before we left there's a problem of the eye and just to recap there's a problem of the eye and the problem of the eye manifests in how we understand both society, how many people, excuse me, not we, how many Americans understand society, particularly many left-wing Americans understand society, even many traditionalist Americans understand society. Let's not leave them off the hook. They, they absolutely have this same kind of conception. Yoram Hazani, um, who wrote the book The Virtue of Nationalism, has this exact same conception of society. For him, the individual does not matter. The I is not exist for Yoram Hazani and his disciples. So let me just make this very clear. This is not a particularly a left-wing phenomenon. This is a 
a, a politically ubiquitous phenomenon, the, 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 the dereliction of the I. So it, it, it affects our understanding of society. And it also affects our ability to interact with knowledge in general. Knowledge beyond simply understanding things about society. The problem of the problem of the eye is so 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 important to understand the undercurrents of our discourse, my friends. So, <clears throat> the reason I mentioned the, this in the context of the Chauvin verdict was because, as, as I mentioned, Chauvin is being seen Chauvin Chauvin, however you say it, he's being seen as a mascot for an order of actions that allegedly assails and besieges the conditions of African Americans today. Chauvin is being seen as not, again, as I mentioned before, an officer who did something wrong. He's being seen as a system who actively and currently is doing things wrong. There's a reason why Kamala Harris, there's a reason why Kamala Harris said, and I quote, the, the verdict in the Chauvin trial will not heal the pain that existed for generations. And in the same context of that quote, she mentions the physiolo physiological complexion of, of, of people in America who happen to have a shade of color on them. This is not to be derisive. But Harris's statement assumes that this trial was meant or intended or even capable of rectifying an amorphous harm that really she nor people who propose that harm exists really define. What they do is they will take individual instances and they will contort them to fit the definition of that harm. Again, the problem of the eye doesn't exist anymore. So, here, there are a few things that are, there are a few problems that are posed by the dereliction of the eye that we see so, so often uh, among um, politicians. A few things. And I'm going to contextualize these consequences in relation to the Chauvin trial. Because if I go into other instances, I'll be, I'll, you'll be here for for years, because there's just so many consequences of the dereliction of the eye. But the dereliction of the eye, you know, I'm trying to gather my thoughts here, because I don't want to be haphazard with this. When you're able to convert people. This is the first consequence. When you're able to convert people to mascots for a certain viewpoint, you are able, again, to eventually construct a world, a reality, in which the narrative masters are like ventriloquists and everyone else who buys into their beliefs are like puppets. What do I mean? If you have, and according to the Washington Post, a lot of Americans, many Americans, something north of 70, I think, 60, 70, many Americans in general, after the George Floyd 
um, killing, believe that black people are inherently disadvantaged in the country. And they believed that black people have less social mobility than white people. They they deduced all of that from the killing of a single black person. And that allows that black person's killing to be weaponized in a certain way. That's the first consequence. What do I mean? Nancy Pelosi said, Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life because now, I'm paraphrasing, because now so many black people don't have to go through what you went through. Despite the fact, and she's been blasted for this, despite the fact that George Floyd was not sacrificing his life, he happened to have a brush, a premature brush with death, despite that very, very, very obvious fact, that very obvious fact, despite that, Pelosi found it reasonable to make that claim. Now, is this a Freudian slip? No, of course not. It is a consequence of a collectivist ideology. Racism is a vicious form of collectivism. Racism is a vicious form of collectivism. Ayn Rand said this. Ayn Rand said this. Racially based thinking is also a vicious form of collectivism. And excuse me if I'm being a little bit sluggish right now, but I want to make sure that my thoughts are very clear. And so Floyd not being an individual presents the possibility of him being weaponized. Not the possibility. It presents the, the fact of him being weaponized. He hasn't weaponized. Chauvin not being an individual presents the fact of him being weaponized. Now we're going from the Pacific to the general here. Let's go to let's go to the general. When you have an understanding of the world that derelicts the eye, that derelicts the individual, and thinks of things in a macro way, then it is very, very possible for one to create a political system in which those macro values, those macro understandings of things reign supreme, and they constitute how politics is done. Now, some would call this identity politics, but I think that it goes way beyond that. I think that, for example, there are things that are not necessarily related to identity politics that are used in this macro sense. When people say that there should be health care for all, what you're doing is that you're conceptualizing the benefit of particular a particular service and saying without really any moral justification beyond how you feel or beyond a sort of more sense of egalitarianism without actually investigating what healthcare means. Healthcare is a relationship between people, between values, between systems, and it's just sort of convergence of all those things coming together to create a, a particular service that is uh, effective and that is uh, – that is that is beneficial to the individual on the basis of their terms. It's an individual thing. So, but when you take the eye out of the healthcare, what do you get? You get an abstraction. You get a broad idea of what healthcare is thought to be, but you don't really get the ability to reasonably interact with all the various parts of the healthcare system, from the from everything from the doctor getting the certification, the doctor having a particular patient, to the doctor prescribing a particular medicine because they know that patient for like 15 years. You don't get all of that when you have a macro conception of healthcare. That when the eye is moved, you don't get that. That's why universal healthcare is a principally untenable position. 
because it has it rejects the eye. It has the problem of the eye. Similarly, the ideas, the macro ideas of systemic racism, what some people have been able to do, they have been able to construct a world where that is the sole value by which you can understand things. Do you get it? Do you get it, people? Richard Delgado, Richard, excuse me, Richard Delgado and John Stefano, two individuals who helped launch critical race theory along with Kimberly Crenshaw back in the 70s. They wrote in a book called Critical Race Theory and Introduction. They said that the reason why racism is so present in society is because it is a normal condition of society, number one, and also because the white working class, or excuse me, the working class and the white elites, those are the two forces that prop up racism because they need it to survive at the expense of people of color. What Shostafonic and Delgado have done, they have engaged in the core of the problem of the I. They have rejected the need to understand individual circumstances. They have rejected the need to understand racism at a deeper level. They've created this broader abstraction, and now they're trying to explain most or all social interactions, and even the world, through this prism. And when that happens... You get an emaciated, a poor view of reality. And that poor view of reality allows you to assign singular causes to complex situations. The George Floyd killing was a complex situation, still is. But for the race theorist or for the activist who endorses Stefanik and Dalgao's reductionist understanding of the world, it can be understood through racism. Adam Toledo, a case in Chicago, which in my opinion should have never, ever happened. 13-year-old lost his life. To the activist, to the race theorist, who wants to weaponize their example, it's racism. A girl who was just shot the other day in Columbus, Ohio. I can't recall her name right now. Because she had a knife and she was running towards a lady in a pink jumpsuit. It's being called an act of racism by people. And what are the two constant conditions in almost every single action that is identified as an act of racism amongst people? The two constant actions is that one, excuse the conditions is that one person in that interaction is white, the other is black. That's all they need to know. Because the blackness and the whiteness of someone already confers a whole multitude of meaning upon a certain situation without actually having to investigate it. It's intellectual laggardness at its height. Let's go further with this, though. The uni, the, the propensity to see politics through a unicausal lens is endemic to how so many Americans conceptualize politics. What do I mean? Well, my friends, Americans have a symbolic understanding of politics. Many Americans do. Many people in general do. What I mean? What do I mean by, what do I mean by that? Okay, so walk with me. When you see the flag, the American flag, 
many people conceptualize it to mean freedom. Okay? What does freedom mean? The flag can maybe be able to confer the idea of freedom, but the flag fails at telling me what freedom at its core actually means. I can't get that from the flag. I have to investigate that with reason. Rational inquiry. <laughs> I, can, I can't get that from the flag. The, the black fist that so many um, activist movements use. What does that mean? That means fighting injustice. What's injustice? How does it interact with people? Who, who, who creates it? Can we be unjust or just personally? I mean, these are concepts that go all the way back to Athens and Greece that have been debated for, for thousands upon thousands of years. And yet they are all summed up in these bumper sticker symbolic understandings of politics. But the best thing is, symbols are meant to be a gateway, not a final destination. The American flag is meant to inspire something inside of you, but it is not meant to tell you what to do with that inspiration. Do you guys hear me? You guys are not listening right now. Do you hear me? So the irrational observer will take the American flag and then they'll go further to unearth the concepts implied by the flag's existence. You get me? But what most people do, they don't do that. What most folks decide to do, they will take the American flag, they'll have an, a very narrow idea of what freedom is, they'll have a very narrow idea of what injustice is, and they'll take that and they'll act upon it. And that symbolic understanding, my friends, prevents one from forming substantive political opinions. And causes one to act in relation to an illusion. Oh, my God. In relation to an illusion. When you're interacting with the symbol of American politics, not the substance thereof, you're acting in relation to a, a, a illusion almost that you convince yourself is real. That's the biggest story coming out of this Void, this Chauvin verdict. The biggest story. We have to break from our symbolic understanding of politics if we want to actually form substantive political opinions. There's a reason why it's very easy for activists, and they were saying this about Van Jones on Twitter the other day. There's a reason why it's very easy for activists to say that we don't want to hear from Van Jones, because Van Jones wants us to love and forgive people. We don't need that right now. There were a, a, a whole host of people who were attacking Van Jones because he was preaching a message of love. This is not... <laughs> I mean, this is the... I wish I was joking. But this is currently... The condition of things. Unfortunately, it most certainly is. It's the condition of a lot of stuff. A lot of how we view our politics. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. But 
<laughs> so long as we have a symbolic understanding of our politics, we will continue to be let down to the road of passions. Solely passions, not just passions that inform certain beliefs. We'll be led down to a road of solely passions rather than being led down to a road of rational understanding, of rational interaction with certain concepts. And the danger of leaving that spirit of rationality is that, and I've argued this in one of my papers that I had not published quite yet. I published, I did it for a class. The danger of that is that we, we as Americans, we, are, we have been given, as Frank Meyer would say, an organic moral order, a, a sort of moral foundation to our country, which is meant to explain and define all of the political interactions uh, with that moral order. Um, and let's make no mistake, my friends, at all. Let's make no mistake. Um, it takes rationality to understand that moral order. It takes rationalism to understand that moral order. Absolutely does, 100%. You know, Thomas Jefferson said that if you're going to have a grievance, this is the Declaration of Independence. If you're going to have a grievance, you have to be able to rationally explain the grievance. Locke invokes reason several times in the formation of his thoughts. The natural law theorists, which is, which is basically the foundation of America, they invoke reason, the light of reason, actually. Christian Tom Thomasius, one of them, invokes reason. Reason is the fundamental component by which we understand things. But reason can only operate, as John Stuart Mill would say, in the presence of discourse. When you have a symbolic political understanding, not only do you prone, not only are individuals prone to being dehumanized and weaponized, but they're also prone to not being able to fully access the reason. And again, that causes you or increases the possibility that you will go towards falsehood. If reason is the method by which we interpret facts or interpret ideas in the world, and we lose our reason, we cannot interpret... If reason is the primary method or the sole method, then it does not follow that we'll be able to interpret through a different way if it is the primary or the sole one. Maybe we'll be able to have a base gas apprehension of those things. But... It doesn't follow to me that we would have a total one. And that's concerning. The foundational tenets of our civilizations is not just about custom and perception. My friends, the foundational tenets of America is as much about a kind of knowledge as it is about anything else. We have to recognize that. If that fact is sacrificed, if that ideal is sacrificed for the sake of a certain political idea, 
whether it's freedom or justice or racism or non-racism, whatever. Then we don't we don't have the ability to access truth anymore, people. It is such a problem. It's such a problem. But so many individuals seem very blasé about it. You don't need to be that. Let this verdict teach you that there is a way, an absolute way, to apprehend political circumstances in a manner that does not cause you to adhere to a fictitious world in which one value reigns supreme, in which symbols reign supreme. Because this is not a world of symbols. Or, or this is a world of people. And you have to consider that in the analysis you make. All right, guys. Enough of that. <laughs> All right. So, my friends, um, if you want to support my work, I encourage you, patreon.com slash officialcwatson. If you want to follow my work, go on Twitter or Facebook. The, the labels are at Official C. Watson. Um, if you want to um, support Fed by Ravens, go to their website, um, Fed by Ravens Media, or download the app. I would appreciate it a lot. Again, we are brought to you by Bolt TV and by Fed by Ravens. As always, my friends, I love you, and please, forever and eternally, I want you to stay pensive. I love you guys. Good night. Bye-bye.